I'm going to uh, be teaching in the weeks ahead, maybe with some interruptions, depending on what the Lord would have us do, but on the book of Revelation. I don't know that I have ever taught on Revelation on Sunday mornings. That's kind of an indictment against me. I think I'm in my 23rd year of pastoring at Victory, and I don't know that I've ever taught through the book of Revelation. But we're going to start, and we're going to attempt to. Now, my goal isn't that we dig into all the details where we have to enter into a lot of assumptions and, and uh, imaginations, maybe. But God makes a lot of things very clear. You know, all of the movies that are out there, the books that are written, all of them usually have at least something in common. Usually they involve a lot of death and destruction, fire from heaven, and much, much more. We've seen that we're going to be destroyed by aliens, according to a lot of different movies. Other movies, there's going to be earthquakes all over, the, all over the world that are going to open up, and there's going to be lava and ash everywhere, and it's going to cause the world to become extinct as we know it. We see that there's going to be asteroids or meteorites strike the earth and cause it to no life to be able to survive. We see more recent years that there's going to be, because of climate change, some polar things going to come down and going to freeze the whole world to death. This isn't a sermon on climate change. I don't know if any of them are true. Personally, I don't think we should stake our hope on any of those. But we do have a source in the book of Revelation that does talk about the end times. And there are, or there is, an end time coming. And we're living in what theologians or people refer to as the church age. We are part of this church age thing. It started when the church was established, after Jesus came to earth and died and was buried and ascended to heaven after he was resurrected. And the church age is going to continue until Jesus comes back for his church. Now, a lot of people will tell you, and a lot of even churches or religious groups will tell you, stay away from Revelation. Don't even read the thing. It's too hard to understand. There's too much symbolism. There's too many illustrations. There's so much there, you just won't get it. Don't go to Revelations because you're just going to become afraid if you understand anything. Well, there's some truth to some of those things. There is symbolism. There are illustrations. Some of them are made very, very clear by God himself. Others, not so much. And the not so much is where we get into all of the speculation, all of the imaginations, um, trying to figure out what it is God means and wants, when this is going to happen, when that's going to happen. But my point is this. There are some of the book of Revelation that we are going to clearly be able to understand. And that's the important part. And what we maybe can't quite understand yet, we can trust that the Holy Spirit is our teacher and he will give us revelation of what's necessary. And I truly believe there's part of it that it doesn't matter or God would have made it clearer. There are things in the Word of God that he doesn't tell us and he doesn't want us to know. And he has a lot of good reasons for it. I'm always reminded of one of my go-to verses because it gets me out of all kinds of trouble when people ask me questions I don't know the answer to. Is Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things of God are secret. You know, what good does it do to try to figure those things out if he wants to keep them a secret? 
So when we're looking at these things, I want us to understand that as Christians, we have the Bible that God has given us. The book of Revelation is in the Bible, and he's given it to us to encourage us, to give us hope. It's good news for those that know Christ. It's good news for all that know Christ. There's a scripture in 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17, that I think we need to be reminded of, especially when people tell us, don't read that, you don't need that, you won't understand that. And it tells us very clearly that all scripture, and guess what? Revelation falls into that category. All scripture. It tells us is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. All of Scripture, <clears throat> including Revelation, is God-breathed. And all of Scripture is beneficial for man. So if God is telling us that, we need to spend some time in the book of Revelation. And I think one of the reasons I'm feeling prompted to teach on this a little bit is because <clears throat> we hear so much out there. And there is such fear if we allow it when we look at what's going on in the world today. We can be consumed by all of the things that are bad, all of the things that are evil. And they can almost overwhelm us and bring us to this place of despair. And I think that we have the Word of God, which is trustworthy, that's been given to us as Christians. And the book of Revelation has been given to us as Christians so that we are not caught up in this fear. We're not caught up in all of the hyperbole and all the imaginations that are out there about what's going to take place. That we can allow the Word of God, including the book of Revelation, to speak to our hearts, to encourage us. So we're going to be looking at the book of Revelation, and we're going to see what God says. And there will be places that I will tell you where I have a particular perspective or bias, and I'll tell you that that's what it is. Because... There has been a lot of controversy over the centuries, actually, on interpreting the book of Revelation. And that's why you hear so many people or so many places tell you, don't go there, it'll just confuse you. I want to just touch on the four different points of view that impact the way people look at Revelation. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but I think we need to understand where some of that confusion comes from. And I think if we look at these four views, and there are more views than just these four, by the way, but these are the primary points of view. The first one is the preterist view. In this view, they start with this viewpoint, that everything in the book of Revelation is past history. In other words, what is being written in the book of Revelation has already taken place. It's already happened. It was dealing only with the church of the Apostle John, who we'll talk about in a moment as the author of this book, or at least he was the transcriber of this book. God was the author. That it was about the church. They say that Revelation, and they start from this point, Revelation does not predict anything. It's all historical. I don't think there's much evidence of this. I think we could look at the scriptures and disprove it quite easily, but a lot of people start at this place. Place. They're saying that it was written the way it is, kind of in a 
a code, all the symbolism, all of these things. It was sort of like a secret, these are my words, by the way, a secret code that only Christians would understand. That way, if anybody in the Roman government who would want to be persecuting or prosecuting Christians wouldn't understand what it said. So it was for the church, things that had taken place. You can see how that would impact the way you read anything. The second one is the historicist view. Here it's like the book of Revelation is this panoramic view of the history of the church age. In other words, of what we're living in, actually. It's just this panoramic view of history and from the first century until Jesus comes back. No, again, no future predictions about end times. No predictions whatsoever. And all of the symbolism that's in there describes now what's taking place in the church age. Now. The third view that I want to mention is goes by... It has a lot of different names. The symbolic point of view or the uh, poetic point of view because of all the symbolism or the allegorical point of view because it's all written as an allegory. They start with that perspective. So when they pick up and look at Revelations, they look at it and say, it's not literal and it is not historical. Either one. It's just a bunch of symbols written in this poetic or allegorical way that are just to minister to each one of us personally individually. <clears throat> I don't believe that one either. And the fourth one is the futuristic view. And this approach believes that from chapter 4 of Revelation all the way through chapter 20, the last chapter of Revelation, is predictive about future events that are going to take place in the end times. Futuristic. It's going to be it's predictive from chapter 4 on of what's going to take place as we come to the end of this age as we know it to be. Now, there are elements of the first three that have some validity. You know, when you start reading it, there is an aspect of it applied right then at that time of its writing, kind of the now. There are aspects of it which are historical, undeniable. There's aspects of it that it's certainly, like all of the Word of God, should have a personal impact on our lives. But I believe the futuristic point of view, the fourth point of view, has way more support from Scripture. I'm going to start with a verse <clears throat> in chapter 1 of Revelation, verse 19. Because in my mind, and I'm pretty simple-minded, I look at this verse and it just pretty much removes the first three from having much substance to them. When you look at verse 19 of chapter 1, it says, Therefore, and we'll look at this and who the author is, we'll look at all that, but it says, Therefore, write the things which you have seen, past, chapter 1, write the things that which are taking place right then, chapters 2 and 3. And then it says, and the things which will take place after these things. The past, the present, and the future. Instructed by God to the writer to write the things which you have seen, 
past, things which are present. And then the chapter 4 through chapter 20, most of the book of Revelation, things that were yet to come after these things. And I believe because of statements like that, and you will see words like after this or these things must occur, I believe there is a chronology to the book of Revelation that is laid out for us. Is it sometimes a little confusing? Yes. But when you start seeing these things, after these things, this will occur after this takes place. Obviously, there is some sort of chronology being laid out by God. So I want to look, first of all, at the author, author and the culture. And when we read things in the Bible so often, <clears throat> we just read it and we have a hard time or we don't take the time to, to imagine or meditate on the situation and context. The culture at this time. The book of Revelation was written in approximately, most people would agree, about 95 A.D. So that would be about six decades after Jesus walked the earth. About 60 years. At the culture of that time, the church has been being persecuted for 60 years. The church has been established in Asia and in parts of Europe. We have all those churches and the seven churches that we'll read about in the book of Revelation, but there's other churches have been established. But by this time, all of the disciples, all of the apostles, those 12, all of them are dead except John. And history tells us most of them, if not all of them, were martyred in one form or another. Some of them were told clearly, you know, that they were beheaded or crucified. History says Peter was crucified upside down on a cross because he didn't feel he deserved to even crucified and die like Jesus was crucified. So at this time, there's been a lot of persecution. The, the government, Rome was still in control. Some of you may have heard of the emperor named Nero. When Nero was, he blamed Christians for everything, which caused everybody to persecute the Christians. He was evil. He was vile. History tells us that he would actually take Christians and tie them to a stake, cover them with tar and light them on fire to be torches to light and bring light into the night. Just one of the methods he used to persecute Christians. And then it got a little bit better for a little while, and then came out another emperor named Damasium, and he was the one that would have been in power at this time. And it was at this time, this is what was going on in the culture, Because of this, the churches, many of them, have allowed compromise to enter into the church. Pressure from the outside. Not just the Roman government, but from the people. History actually records that more Christians were martyred in this time by their neighbors than they were by the Roman government. The Christians at this time were considered a cult by many. So a lot of the persecution came from their neighbors, whether they were Jews or Gentiles. And it's in this scenario that now the author is going to get this download and this revelation from God to give to the churches. And our author is John, the Apostle John. And I know most of you know this, but I just want to get us to see a clear picture. John now, by this time, is an old man. 
He has went through a lot. At one time, he was a pastor in Ephesus. He's been proclaiming the word of God, the gospel message, clearly, boldly for years with much persecution. He was one of the 12, so he spent over about three years with Jesus. And he was actually kind of part of this subgroup in the 12 of the three. It was James, his brother, and Peter and John. That many times, it would be like if you, you have this group of 12 But there was this group of three that Jesus would take aside with him at many different times. And they got to witness different things. For example, they would have been with Jesus when when, when the transfiguration occurred. When Jesus, they they, they looked and they saw Jesus and his face shine like the sun and 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 his clothing was white like light. And he was talking to Moses and Elijah who had died centuries before. Those three were there. John was there. John was also the one who prayed in the small group that was taken a little further into the Garden of Gethsemane. They didn't do so well. They kept falling asleep. But he was one of them called to go with Jesus. John actually referred to himself in his own writings as the disciple that Jesus loved. He knew Jesus well. He was the disciple who was standing at the foot of the cross when Jesus was crucified, and he was standing with Jesus' mother Mary. And he is the disciple that Jesus, looking down from the cross, asked him to take care of my mother Mary. He said to Mary, this is your son. John, this is your mother. Take care of her for me. He was also the disciple. After the the disciples, after the resurrection, they they said, hey, let's just go back and go fishing. And they're out in the boat fishing, and they see this figure on shore. John was the first one to recognize him as the Lord. I say all of that to give us this picture that John knew Jesus really well. He spent a lot of time with him. He walked the roads of Nazareth with him. He walked the roads of Judea with him. He went through the streets of Jerusalem with him. He sat at his feet being taught. He knew him. He knew what he looked like, and he knew him well. And he is the author of this book. But several decades had passed. He looked different, and we're going to see when Jesus comes and visits him, it's not the same Jesus as far as appearance that he knew when he walked on earth. Jesus, or at this time, Peter, excuse me, John, it tells us is on the island of Patmos. And I'll give a map of that probably in the next week or two, but He's on the island of Patmos. It's an island, a volcanic rocky island just off the coast of southwest Asia. He's been exiled there. Damatian, D-O-M-I-T-I-A-N is his name, had sent him there instead of killing him. Nobody knows why for sure, but sometimes they were more trouble after they were martyred, so it was just as easy to send him to an isolated island. So this is where this old man is sitting, And then he has this experience. He has this vision. And that's what the book of Revelation is all about. And as I said earlier, it's about 95 A.D. So we're going to look at Revelation. We're going to start in verse 1 of chapter 1. The Revelation. First of all, what does Revelation mean? It's simple. The word is 
apocalypsis in the Greek, but it's the word that we get the word apocalypse now from, and it simply means an uncovering or an unveiling or a revealing. What is being uncovered, unveiled, or revealed here? Jesus Christ. He is the one being revealed, and he's the one doing the revealing. God likes to do stuff like that. So when we look at this, starting in chapter 1, and I'm going to read verse 3 verses. The revelation of Jesus Christ. Right away, we see the purpose of this whole book. It's to reveal Christ to the church. It's to reveal Christ to us. It's to give us hope, give us confidence, give us an encouragement as it reveals more of Christ to us and what his, what his work is going to be in the end times. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants, gave him. Revelation of Christ that God gave, God gave it to Jesus to reveal to his bondservants. And I want you to understand that, to notice that that's plural. It's all of us. We are called to be bondservants of Jesus Christ. That's one of the things we're called in the Scripture, bondservants, voluntary slaves of our Lord and Savior Jesus. So this revelation is being given of Jesus Christ, and it's given to John to reveal to all of us as the church. He gave him to show his bondservants the thing which must shortly take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. So this revelation, we are instructed right off the get-go that this is a prophetic word. And it's something we all need to hear. And there's almost a picture there in the synagogues in the time of Jesus. There would be one person who would be stand up in the group and read. And the rest would be hearers of the word. There's almost an allusion to that picture in the way it's said. But blessed are those who hear and read and then do. Act on the words of this prophecy. And it says they will be blessed as they do this. And it says that it will shortly take place. Now, depending on your translation, that word shortly that's in the scriptures I believe that I used has a primary meaning and secondary meaning like so many words in the Greek do. The primary meaning of that word shortly is suddenly or quickly. In other words, God is going to suddenly or quickly intervene. It's not necessarily a term that means soon, but that is a secondary meaning, soon. I believe both of those could apply. The soon would apply to the church that was there, that the letter was written to. There were things that were going to happen very soon. But I believe to the church overall, it's probably more accurate to be just defined as quickly, suddenly. He's going to act. He's going to move. You know, the church, the Jewish people have been waiting hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years for the Messiah. And then suddenly, 
God came. The Holy Spirit impregnated Mary and the Messiah was born. After all that time, all of a sudden, there he was. It's easy for the church to get complacent and think when we read things like this, well, my goodness, it's been 2,000-some years. This can't, it isn't going to happen. We need to remember a timeline called eternity. Has no beginning, has no end. Suddenly, soon, whether it's 1,000 years, 2,000 years, 10,000 years, in terms of eternity, in God's time frame, it's sudden. It's soon. We don't know. We don't know. And as we look at those scriptures again, we see that the predictive element is revealed right out of the gate. So to say that this doesn't predict anything would have to totally ignore the word of scripture itself. It's a prophecy. We see that it's communicated to John by an angel. And John right away knew that it was the word of God. He understood this wasn't just a dream and he was going to write down his own thoughts. He declares this is the word of God. He knew it was scripture, what we would call scripture. And probably the most important thing right off the the bat that I want us to get a hold of is who read it, hear it, and keep it will be blessed. The book of Revelation should change the way we live, just like the rest of Scripture. It will bless us. We don't need to be afraid of it. We don't need to be concerned that we can't quite understand all of it. But he says those who read it hear it, and then live it, act on it, keep it, will be blessed. So you don't have to go very far into the Scriptures to realize we're not supposed to ignore this book. No matter who's told you not to read it, no matter who's told you you're not smart enough to understand it, don't even try to go there, ignore all that advice. We can read it and we're supposed to. John chapter, Revelation 1 verses 4 through 8. And again, I'm going to read all of them. John now starts out by identifying his immediate target audience. He says, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood, and he has made us to be a kingdom of priests to his God and Father, to him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. Even so. Amen. For those that don't know, amen really means what? So let it be. Even though he's coming, so let it be. And that is John's introduction. And I believe when we look at the next verse, verse 8, it's almost as if Christ is introducing himself. Okay, John, that's nice. You've introduced yourself. You've told them who I am. You gave me all these wonderful names. And then he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega says the Lord God, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. When we look at these verses, the seven churches, and I'll mention this a little bit later, but when you look for the number seven in Scripture, it is amazing 
Amazing how many times the number seven appears. Matter of fact, when we look just here in the book of Revelation, over 50 times, over 50 times in the book of Revelation, the number seven. When something's mentioned that often, there is probably some kind of significance to it that we need to try to grasp. And if you go further than that, in the entire Bible, it's mentioned over 700 times, the number seven. And if you add places in the Scripture where it says things like seven times 70 and things like that, it's way more than 700. Seven. In the Bible, it appears that much of the time that when you see the number of seven, it's the number of completeness, the number of perfection, the seven times. When's the first time you read it? Genesis. How about seven days of creation? And you can go through Scripture and check out Bible story after Bible story, and there it is. It pops up. How many times did you circle the city of Jericho before the walls come tumbling down? Seven times. And you can go through over and over and over, and you see that seven. And that seven means it's been completed. It's perfection. It's there. However, sometimes you know what seven means in the Bible? Seven. And that's it. So this is one of the cautions we always have to have when we're studying Scripture, especially the book of Revelation. We don't want to get so we're giving these deep, secret meanings that have only been revealed to you in every situation. Not that it can't happen, but it doesn't happen all the time. So when we look at Revelation and we look at these verses, seven spirits of God, sometimes that gets a little confusing. What are the seven spirits of God? I just want to offer this to you. If you look back in Isaiah, I believe it was chapter 11. Uh, Let me see here. Yes, chapter 11, verse 2. I believe the seven spirits of God, the seven complete perfection, are simply attributes, characteristics of the Holy Spirit. And in Isaiah 11, 2, it says, the Spirit of the Lord... I can find my spot. There we go. Spirit of the Lord, Spirit of wisdom, Spirit of understanding, Spirit of counsel, Spirit of strength, Spirit of knowledge, and the Spirit of fear of the Lord. So I believe that's, it's just basically if you want to, and the Holy Spirit in his completeness, in his perfection is there. I think I'll leave the seven alone for now and go on to verses 9 through 20. I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet. And that voice was saying, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches. Send it to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. And then it says, I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands 
in the middle of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed in a white in a robe, reaching to the feet, girded across his breast with a golden girdle, and his head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow, and eyes were like a flame of fire, and his feet were like burnished bronze, when it has been caused to glow in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. And in his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp edge, sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell to the ground as if dead, as a dead man. There's so many things in those verses. We see, first of all, in verse 9, that he's been exiled to Patmos, this island. And he was exiled because of what? Because he'd been sharing the gospel. He'd been talking about God and the testimony of Christ. In verse 10, John hears Jesus before he sees him. And he says he hears this voice as the sound of a trumpet. Now, how many of you know if somebody stands behind you and blows a trumpet, it gets your attention? And this is what he hears, this voice speaking to him. And when he speaks to him, he says in verse 11, write in this book. So he's getting instructions from this voice that he has not seen the source of yet. And this voice is giving instructions, telling him what to write down, and he's telling him where to send it. And he's sending it to seven churches, and we'll focus on those later, but not today. But there's seven churches. I believe... The seven churches, well, we know for a fact they were not the only churches. There were many, many churches scattered throughout Asia and into Europe. But I believe, again, here the seven churches are significant. Yes, they were significant churches, but I believe seven is that number of completeness, wholeness, perfection. I really believe the seven churches is all the churches, all churches. Write this for all churches everywhere for all time. Write these things down. And then John turns to look and to see who is speaking. And this is why I wanted to give us a picture of John as he walked on the earth with Jesus. The Jesus that he knew. The Jesus that he loved. The Jesus he spent so much time with. That Jesus. And now he turns around and he sees Jesus. Only my goodness. It's a different Jesus the way he appears to him here. And we see the description of Jesus. And it's clear. And the one thing I just want to mention is the sword in his mouth. What is the sword? What does it represent? The word of God. That's the weapon. That is the weapon. And we see it here. He turns and he sees this amazing Jesus. And what does he do? He falls to his, at the feet of Jesus as if he was a dead man. Awe and reverence. And again, some of these things are just the way they impact me. But I, I am so struck by the fact that Jesus then lays his hand on John to encourage him. We know in Scripture the laying out of hands is an impartation. 
what he was imparting, I don't know. Maybe it was the ability to remember all of what he's just been commanded to write. I don't know. But part of me is like, maybe it was just Jesus reassuring John. This is me. Do not fear. I am Jesus. And then he describes himself to John. And then he gives an explanation. I guess this is one of the things that I think we need to understand as we're going and looking into the book of Revelation. If, if Jesus didn't give an explanation of the lampstands and the stars, what might they be? Well, we maybe could have figured it out. But sometimes throughout the scripture and throughout the book of Revelation, he tells us clearly what these things represent. And that's the case here. He turns and he sees, as we look in verse uh, what, 16, 15, 16. And in his right hand he held seven stars. And out of his mouth came a two-edged sword. His face was like shining in the strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And then he, he talks about seeing this, this man standing in the, verse 13, in the middle of the lampstands, one who's like the Son of God, clothed in this robe, and it talks about him. And, but then he tells us exactly what these things represent. He lays it out for us. In verses 19 and 20, Write, therefore, the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. Again, verse 19 that I read earlier. He says, As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. A lot of, most theologians would agree, they think that that seven angels represents the seven leaders or teachers or pastors of the seven churches. And the, the seven lampstands are, in fact, the seven churches. And God, Christ, is standing in the middle of his churches. Again, I think it's something for all of us churches. Christ has got to be the center of every church. Or we will do like so many of the churches at that time. As we look into the next chapter, we see kind of like a spiritual checkup of the church. And in this case, seven churches. And one of the things that's always disturbing to me is as I go through those seven churches, I can see many of us, including especially me, I can see myself in some of those seven churches. I can see some churches that would say, yeah, that's our church. So we will, we will look at those churches in the coming, few, coming, coming weeks. So what are we supposed to make of the book of Revelation? Well, first of all, I think we need to go back and remind us of Revelation verse 3, 1 verse 3. Blessed are you who reads, those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it. As I said at the beginning, my goal isn't to go into some super deep depths and uh, assume and, and make my own imaginations and my own thoughts, but there will be times, there will be certain things that I will say, this is what I believe it means. And I may or may not, depending on what it is, go into a lot of depth or detail. Um, i just tell you what I think it means. For example, when you get to the very end times, it starts talking about when does the church disappear from the earth and go up into heaven? Well, there's not agreement. 
on that. I would just say whatever your position is, know what it is based on Scripture. But rather, I want us to go ahead and understand as best we can what the Holy Spirit reveals to us. Because there is an admonition for us to read the book. To read it. Be blessed by it. And we are living in the days when the world, especially our nation, but the world is in turmoil. Things are happening that have never happened before. We see darkness and evil manifesting itself in ways that's never hardly been done before. We see churches, and this is one of my primary concerns, we see churches opening up the doors to compromise and tolerance of things that are contrary to Scripture. We are no longer standing on the Word of God. We're trying to appeal to our culture, embracing things from the culture. Because if we don't, we get made fun of, we get persecuted, we get picked on. We get called names. Let it happen. As a church, we need to stand on the word of God always, no matter what. And part of it is that exhortation that we're going to see in the book of Revelation in in the next couple chapters. Church, stay on track. Individuals of the church, stay on track. Just because something's legal does not make it right and godly. Just because something's commonly accepted does not make it right and godly. We are going to receive greater and greater persecution. Now, our goal isn't to go out and make martyrs of ourselves, but a goal needs to be stand for what is truth and do it in love. Part of the church's problem throughout history has been we do things in truth with condemnation. Our goal should never be to condemn. Our goal should always to do whatever we can to give people opportunity to receive the truth and become followers of Jesus Christ. And I believe part of that kind of encouragement will come as we continue through the book of Revelation. When you're reading it, and I encourage you to read it, you'll discover as a believer it's a book written to give us hope and give us encouragement, not to create fear. Now, if a non-believer was going to read the book, it may well cause a little fear. But that's not the primary objective of the book. Let's close in prayer today. Heavenly Father, I just pray that as we do go through this book, first of all, God, I pray that you would help me to to lead it and teach it in the way that you would want me to. I pray that you would help each one of us to hear. Father, I pray that you would draw each one to the book of Revelation, that we would be reading it, each one on our own, and give us understanding by your Holy Spirit. Father, I pray against the spirit of fear that would try to bring fear to discourage us to be in your word, to deprive us of the blessings that you promise as we read your word. I pray, God, that you would give us that understanding. And I pray, God, as we do this, at least these two things happen, God, that we are better equipped to go out and minister to the world in this time of fear and hopelessness, but primarily, Lord, that we would bring glory and honor to you. And Father, as we go our separate way now, I pray you would give us protection. God, I pray for protection for all of us and everybody as we go into this week with these severe temperatures. Keep people safe. Watch over us. God, I pray you would continue to give us opportunities, those divine appointments, to share the good news of Christ with those that we come in contact with. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.